WRFI Community Radio News is made possible by listeners like you. Help us tell important stories about your community. Head to WRFI.org slash donate. From the Kenny Ritter Studios in the historic Clinton House in downtown Ithaca, New York, this is WRFI Community Radio News for Thursday, October 29th, 2020. I'm Michaela Savitt. And I'm Fred Balfour. After the headline news, you'll hear a tale from a trampoline story slam competition. Today's story is from Trampoline's recent online event, four and 20 blackbirds. But first, here's a weather forecast, courtesy of the National Weather Service. Tonight, a mix of snow and rain is likely. Lows will drop into the mid-30s. Tomorrow, there's a slight chance of rain and snow showers in the morning, turning to rain by the afternoon, with highs in the lower 40s. Tomorrow night will be partly cloudy, with lows dropping into the mid-20s, and looking to Saturday, sunny with highs in the upper 40s. And now... Tonight's news for Ithaca and Watkins Glen. In some breaking news, the Ithaca Police Department has internally identified a suspect after at least three businesses in downtown Ithaca were vandalized with anti-Semitic and racist graffiti and posters. Upon investigation, police uncovered, uncovered materials for homemade explosives and firearms at the suspect's residence and at another, quote, undisclosed location, unquote. This weekend's crimes follow a similar incident last week that included the defacement of a sign outside a local chiropractor's office. At the time, the suspect is not being named. Their status is unknown, except for that they are, quote, not out in the community, unquote, according to an IPD press release. However, police say in their release that they plan to pursue multiple counts of criminal mischief in the fourth degree as a hate crime. Law enforcement uncovered more items during their investigation, According to the Ithaca Voice, they uncovered hate posters, rifle parts, and numerous items consistent with explosives, such as fuse wire, caps, a timer, tubing, and a, quote, undisclosed amount of a powdered chemical, unquote. The investigation into the suspect is ongoing, and they, again, are not out in the community. Law enforcement say that more information will soon be made available. The second hearing on the City of Ithaca budget kicked off at 6 p.m. today. Earlier this month, Mayor Savanti Myrick presented his proposed 2021 budget at the regular meeting of the City Common Council. The City of Ithaca faces the task of making up a deficit of about $2.5 million that is not paid for in the proposed budget. Myrick's office proposed defunding 28 currently unfilled positions, reducing hours for seven positions, and laying off two employees, reports the Ithaca Voice. Myrick's budget calls for a 2.8% decrease in funding for the Ithaca Police Department budget. The proposed decrease is about $357,000, down from last year's budget of $12,775,000. $12, 
The savings come from eight vacant officer positions that have been left open amid the economic fallout of COVID-19. In addition, the mayor is calling on IPD to create an operational efficiency plan to reform beat assignments and stagger coverage in order to have more officers on duty during peak call times and less officers on at times when they get fewer calls. The mayor says he wants to see this plan be put into effect as soon as possible. Members of the public who would like to comment on the proposed budget can offer written input on website tinyurl.com slash budget comments 1029. Repeating that, tinyurl.com slash budget comments 1029. For more information about the city budget, visit the website cityofithaca.org. That's cityofithaca.org. In even more City of Ithaca news, a petition demanding the resignation or removal of Ithaca Police Department Deputy Chief is gathering mass public support. According to the Ithaca Voice, over 1,200 people have signed on to the petition, demanding that Ithaca Mayor Savante Myrick and IPD Chief Dennis Nair, among other officials, remove Ithaca Police Deputy Chief Vincent Monticello from his post. The petition formally announced today by Ithaca Pantheris calls to, quote, consider Vincent Monticello's immediate dismissal for cause, improper behavior, and failure to detain a man threatening physical violence and hate speech, unquote. Last Thursday, Monticello oversaw the arrest of Messiah White Saunders, who was protesting a press conference held by Congressman Tom Reed. The Ithaca Voice reports that a confrontation began when, when a man who was white was apparently driving by the scene when he got involved in a verbal alter- altercation with White Saunders, who was black. White Saunders was told by the driver that they and other protesters should, quote, just die already, unquote. The man was also allegedly brandishing a knife earlier in the argument. Video shows that Monticello then blames the confrontation on the group of protesters. White Saunders is then arrested and told by police he's being charged with obstruction. Monticello later arrested Genevieve Rand, another protester, who called for Messiah's release at IPD headquarters. Video shows that Rand was misgendered before being handcuffed and taken into custody. She says that Monticello and other police officers misgendered her while she was at IPD headquarters. That night, six protesters were arrested, and police used pepper spray against the dozens of attendees that were there to protest the arrests. Today, Ithaca Mayor Savante Myrick announced he's requesting an state-level review of the incidents. The Schuyler County Health Department announced last night that another community member has passed away due to COVID-19. The individual was a male in his 70s and is the third Schuyler County resident that's died from the virus. As of today, there are six new cases of COVID-19 in Schuyler and 31 active cases remain. The latest numbers released today from the Tompkins County Health Department indicate that there are 12 additional positives and three new recoveries. According to the County Health Department, that leaves 77 active cases of COVID-19 in Tompkins. In more COVID-19 news, the Ithaca YMCA may be facing closure as a result of the pandemic. Ryan Weiss, the YMCA's Board of Directors chairperson, revealed that the location is losing as much as $15,000 a month. This comes from having to pay employees despite drops in memberships. And these losses have resulted in their number of memberships dropping 
from around 1600 to 830 from the start of the year, according to the Ithaca Voice. The YMCA closed earlier this year in mid-March due to rising cases of COVID-19 in New York. They reopened on August 31st while following the state's requirements for reopening a workout location. Although to achieve this, the YMCA had to pay significant amounts of money in order to staff the location. Ithaca's Outdoor Dining Avenue, dubbed the Aurora Eatery, will remain open until November 16th. Traffic will not be able to go through the North Aurora Street block for the time being. This information was released in a statement today by the city, according to the Ithaca Times. The city revealed that they wanted to keep the Aurora Eatery open to support local business during pandemic. They have never officially announced a closing date for the area. Initially, the city of Ithaca considered installing heat lamps, but the idea was shut down due to concerns about violating fire code. Before the area's closure to traffic, the intersection was one of the busiest streets in Ithaca. And again, that is the Aurora Streetery that on North Aurora Street, and it will be uh, closed for the time being, and folks can continue to walk down that street and sit outside and enjoy outdoor dining. In our uh, last headline of the day in New York State News, a coalition of environmental Business and Health Groups is urging New York State to take the lead in a regional effort to reduce carbon pollution from transportation. Andrea Sears with the Public News Service reports. A coalition of environmental, business, and health groups is urging New York State to take the lead in a regional effort to reduce carbon pollution from transportation. Transportation is now the leading cause of carbon pollution in New York. A new collaboration of 12 states and the District of Columbia called the Transportation and Climate Initiative could help cut that pollution and raise funds for updating transportation infrastructure. According to Elizabeth Broad, who heads New Yorkers for Clean Power, it's modeled on the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative that has successfully reduced emissions from the power sector. PCI would put a cap on transportation sector carbon pollution and require oil companies to reduce the pollution that they cause over time. She says New York must take the lead in TCI regional negotiations to ensure that pollution caps meet the state's commitment to achieve net zero emissions by 2050. The TCI would put a regional cap on emissions from transportation fuels and require oil companies to pay for the pollution they cause by buying pollution credits. Broad notes that could raise up to $1.4 billion a year for New York. That money would go to investments in equitable and sustainable transportation solutions like better mass transit, more walkable and bikeable communities, clean electric buses and trucks. She says it also would spur investments in environmental justice initiatives, create good-paying jobs, and accelerate the state's economic recovery following the COVID-19 pandemic. Broad points out that for all of this to happen, the states that want to join TCI need to sign a memorandum of understanding by the end of the year. Fingers crossed New York will join and will really be a leader to help push the other states to agree to the most ambitious possible program. Once states have signed on, the provisions of the Transportation and Climate Initiative will go into effect in 2022. For New York News Connection, I'm Andrea Sears. 
And in more U.S. election news, the Supreme Court is blocking North Carolina and Pennsylvania Republicans from requiring ballots to be delivered by Election Day. And a Texas court is requiring masks at polling places. More from our friends over at Pacifica Network and again, the Public News Service. Welcome to 2020 Talks, where we track the 2020 elections in uncharted territory. This is the election in which I have been most concerned about voter intimidation and the prospect of violence. Sherilyn Ephill with the NAACP Legal Defense Fund is concerned about threats of violence before, during, and after Election Day. We saw circumstances last week in which even law enforcement officers appeared to be engaged in voter intimidation. And it also was a circumstance in which we have to fear that in some places, local law enforcement cannot be counted on. Late yesterday, the Supreme Court blocked Republican lawsuits in Pennsylvania and North Carolina. In both cases, ballots must be postmarked by Election Day. But North Carolina can count ballots received up to nine days afterwards, and Pennsylvania has until November 6th. New Justice Amy Coney Barrett did not vote, saying she hadn't had enough time to consider either case. According to the latest state polling averages, Pennsylvania is one of eight swing states where it's impossible to predict whether Trump or Biden will win, along with Arizona, Iowa, North Carolina, Georgia, Florida, and Texas. All eight went for Trump in 2016. Here's Annette Tadeo, a state senator from Miami. No matter what the polls say, we are always decided by 1% or less. But for anybody to suggest that it wasn't going to be close, they clearly do not understand Florida. Pollsters predict that Trump needs to win most of those states or some combination of swing and Democrat-leaning states to be re-elected. In 2016, state polls incorrectly predicted an electoral win for Hillary Clinton right up to Election Day. But prominent pollsters say they've adjusted their methods to be more accurate this time. The only state where polls changed significantly in the past week is Texas, which just turned from, quote, leaning Republican to, quote, toss-up. With 38 delegates, Texas is a potentially game-changing prize. Luke Warford with the Texas Democratic Party says they've been registering infrequent voters. Texas isn't a red state, it's a non-voting state, and I think that that's totally reflected in the shifting demographics of the state. Gains in voter registrations can still be outweighed by tactics to suppress the vote, like requiring an excuse to vote by mail, voter IDs at the polls, and Republican Governor Greg Abbott's decree that each county can only have one secure ballot drop-off site, even if they have to travel hundreds of miles, especially given it's too late to mail ballots. Here's Anthony Gutierrez, Executive Director of Common Cause Texas. The governor and secretary of state did nothing to expand uh, vote by mail. Um, Despite multiple lawsuits, Texas is one of the only places where you just were not able to do that. So a lot of people who wanted to vote by mail are having to go to poll sites um, right now and on Election Day. Texas voters may feel safer going to the polls now. Yesterday, a federal court in San Antonio ruled that all in-person voters, poll workers and poll watchers must wear masks. From Pacifica Network and Public News Service, I'm Lily Bolke. Thanks for listening at PacificaNetwork.org and PublicNewsService.org. And that concludes our headline news for tonight. Coming up, you'll hear a tale from the local trampoline story slam competition now online. It's from their most recent event, 4 and 20 Blackbirds. First, a little music for your Thursday evening here on WRFI Community Radio News. Stay with us. Well, it sadly seems that our little Frank Sinatra song decided to stop playing. Technology in 2020 
Well, we will turn to our special features for tonight. In the meantime, that was the beginning of stormy weather. Hopefully we'll get back to that a little later on. First off, we have a couple of entertainment-centered stories for our special features. First, a report from WRFI news contributor Fred Balfour, also my co-host for today. He brings us the story of Ithaca and Tompkins County's Channel 13 being off the air for a month now. The air, our area has long enjoyed three public TV channels, but now it's off the air. He gives us the lowdown on what's been happening. Ithaca and Tompkins County Charter Spectrum cable subscribers have been missing dozens of popular locally produced TV programming on public access channel 13. Book readings and other kinds of demonstrations and talks. Uh, Get Bucket Sports with Bill McGill. He reports on local sports. DSA have interviews with interesting people on, on very cogent topics and often things that don't get covered in the regular media. But a lot of broad spectrum of points of view, right and left, and arts events, cultural events, informational stuff. That was local producer Tony Ingram, retiree from New York State Parks, who hosts the popular show A Walk in the Park. It broadcasts weekly when Channel 13 is on the air. In actuality, the playback functionality of Channel 13 has been compromised for about five months. That's Rich DiPolo, chair of the five-member Access Oversight Committee. The committee's function is to manage the legal document that is the franchise agreement between Charter Spectrum and the City of Ithaca, Town of Ithaca, and Cuyahoga Heights. Federal law states that the broadband cable companies are required to provide equipment, staffing, and three TV channels to local communities. We feel very strongly that the regulation is clear, that Charter is financially obligated to provide playback equipment, and unless and until they, they do so, we intend to let the community know that uh, Charter seems to be doing what it can do to compromise the community's ability to express itself via the television medium. WRFI contacted Lauren Kelly, Director of Government Affairs at Charter Communications, who wrote, quote, Charter continues to meet its franchise and other legal obligations regarding the Ithaca Public Access Channel. Charter has offered two solutions to ensure continued playback of public access programming and is awaiting guidance from the Access Oversight Committee on how to proceed, unquote. Meanwhile, the committee is seeking guidance from New York's Public Service Commission, or PSC, on interpretation of the law. At the moment, the committee and Charter Communications have no scheduled return to the negotiating table. So cable subscribers will continue missing their favorite locally produced TV programs for the foreseeable future. For WRFI Community Radio, this is Fred Balfour in Ithaca, New York. This is WRFI Community Radio News. I'm Michaela Savitt. We're going to hear that Frank Sinatra stormy weather song again, and then we'll get into our uh, second half of the features today, a tale from Trampoline, Ithaca's premier storytelling competition. So stay with us. Don't know why there's no sun up in the sky, stormy weather. Since my gal and I ain't together Keeps raining all the time Life is bare Gloom and misery everywhere 
Frank Sinatra, Stormy Weather. This is WRFI Community Radio News. I'm Michaela Savitt. Up next is uh, a tale from Trampoline, Ithaca's premier storytelling competition. Its events have been taking place online via Zoom since April 2020 with the pandemic. The overall trampoline theme for 2020 has been the Roaring Twenties, which resulted in nights such as Letter to Me in My Twenties. And it's all about the Jacksons and its most recent storytelling evening, Four and Twenty Blackbirds. The winning storyteller was Marissa Slocum, a Union Union Springs, New York resident who paints pottery for Mackenzie Childs. Marissa is new to trampoline. She joined the competition just after the pandemic shut down. Here's her, her story from the Zoom video conferencing stage. Enjoy. Hello, good evening. Um, last month, I told a story about an experience that I had in Nepal, and this tonight's story is also taking place in Nepal. When I was there, um, it was shortly after I graduated from college, and um, I was there working with a missionary family. We were doing medical work. Um, and my story is about monkeys. Now, there are three, I don't know if they're necessarily creatures, but three things in this world that freak me out terribly. One is clowns, one is baby dolls, and the other, the third one is monkeys. I don't know something about them. They're like close enough to humans, but yet there's something a little off about them that just freaks me out. But anyway, in Nepal, there's this place called the Monkey Temple, where uh, I guess it's Buddhist, I believe, it's in Kathmandu, and there are, you know, hundreds of monkeys that live there, and you can go visit, and the monkeys are everywhere, and the monkeys in Nepal, they can be quite, I think they're macaques, macaque monkeys, so they're, you know, relatively small, um, but they're quite aggressive. They can get in people's homes and steal things. Um, you know, they can like hiss at you if they, if you get too close. Well, anyway, my friends and I, one day we decided we're going to go visit this monkey temple and we're going to bring a picnic along. I don't know who thought it was a great idea to have a picnic outside in a monkey temple. Um, so we, anyway, we went there and we had a great time. Uh, we found a nice secluded outdoor area where we sat down and we had a picnic and as we were sitting there eating, all of a sudden we started seeing, you know, surrounding us were all these monkeys, you know, monkeys of all ages and sizes. There were mama monkeys and baby monkeys, and they were big old, you know, huge old ancient monkeys. And uh, for the most part, they were well behaved. They just kind of stayed off in the distance, but they were all, you know, in a circle around us, all watching us eating. And so they left us in peace for the most part. And then at one point, you know, once we were done, we started packing up and we had like some leftover crackers and and whatnot. We said, oh, well, let's feed the monkeys. So, but, so we started handing them out. And again, the monkeys were still very well behaved and they were very shy and they would approach us very um, slowly and they'd like reach out and then, you know, grab the food and back up and run away. And, you know, so we had it actually, it was a, it was a fairly pleasant, fun time feeding the monkeys. And I noticed as I was feeding a bunch of the younger monkeys that there was off to the side, there was this huge giant male monkey. He must've been like the granddaddy of them all or something. 
he was just sitting there, you know, just sitting there kind of, I knew he was watching me, but he was doing it in that indirect way that monkeys have, uh, you know, they're not, they don't look right at your face, but they're, you, you know, they're, they're watching you. And as I was feeding all the other monkeys, you know, I, I noticed he was just, he was keeping his eye on me. And at one point he finally, he kind of just slowly ambled up to me and I was wearing a dress at the time I had a skirt. So he walked up and all the other monkeys scattered. They got out of his way. He walked up and he sat down next to me and he took a hold of my hem and just sat there. He didn't look at me, but he was just sat there just kind of calmly like, okay, you know, you will feed me now. So I fed him and then I don't know what happened. Something flipped a switch and all of a sudden these monkeys, smaller, younger female monkeys started shrieking at me and like leaping at me and grabbing at my clothes, like from behind. And they like, like were biting at my clothes and like all at once. And I didn't, you know, I was, I was like, no, where, no matter where I turned, they were coming at me from all directions. And this, I don't know what happened to this big granddaddy monkey. He, he just, he took off and left. He's like, you're on your own woman. <laughs> so, um, I, I, I was freaking out. And I, so I grabbed one of my other friends there, uh, another guy friend. I like grabbed him and I, you know, grabbed his arms and like pulled him in front of me and I used him as a body shield. And we like, you know, had to back out of there, uh, with me using him between me and the other monkeys. Uh, we made it out. Okay. Safe. We had all, you know, no actual monkey bites, but you know, my clothes had holes and I actually still have that outfit and it still has holes in it to this day. But to this day, I don't know what happened other than, you know, I know that female monkeys can be very jealous. Um, cause I had, uh, an aunt and uncle who lived in, uh, Africa in Zaire, well now the Congo, um, and they had a pet monkey, a female monkey who adored my uncle and hated my aunt. So all I can think of is that somehow this, when this big male monkey came and like took a hold of my dress, he was like taking possession of me somehow or showing favor or something that freaked out all the other female monkeys and they did not appreciate me being adopted into the harem, I guess. So I was rejected from monkey harem, but. <laughs> so that's my story and actually I have that on one of my online dating profiles I say I would say something about my monkey story and that usually gets a lot of interest for no other reason than just they want to hear about my monkey story so thank you <laughs> Marissa Slocum with her winning tale from trampoline's most recent storytelling competition themed for and 20 blackbirds as part of the overall trampoline theme for the year, Roaring Twenties. And even through a pandemic, trampoline has continued to host uh, live storytelling events, but online, like so many other events this year. And with the help of WRFI contributor Peter Bakia and trampoline host Mickey Quinn, we are teaming up with the group to bring those stories of the community here to our program on Thursday evenings. So tune in next week for more socially distanced and online stories. And that will do it for our program today. The headlines at the top of our show were written by WRFI contributors Christian Maitre and Anna Lamb. Today's feature producers were WRFI contributors Peter Bakia and Fred Balfour. Fred was also my co-anchor today. And I'm Michaela Savitt, WRFI news director and executive producer for our program. Back tomorrow night and every weekday evening at 6 with more of the stories impacting our communities. 
On behalf of the entire WRFI News team, take care, be well, stay warm, and have a good evening. Two, three. W R F I.